0: I am so pumped up. What does it mean to fight? What does it mean to stand up in a bowed-down world? You see, the last two years, probably the number one question I got from so many of you, whether you're watching online or whether you're here you know, in the auditorium right now, is, Dan, when do I stand up for my faith? Or how do I stand up for my faith with a culture that uh, ever seems to be heading in the opposite direction of faith, And so over the next four weeks, we're going to want to unpack this. This is going to be just like a one-time uh, uh, thing. And here's what I can promise you. It's going to ruffle your feathers just a little bit. There's going to be some aspect or something that's said that's going to cause you to squirm a little bit. And before I put up natural defenses or I don't agree with that, I'm going to ask you just to process that in accordance to what God's word actually has to say. And so with that being said as the foundation, let's start with this. How many of you by a show of hands and put it in the chat have ever heard of this phrase, the home field advantage? Okay, the home field advantage. Okay, most of you have heard that. You know, uh, there are two equal teams or equal opponents that are getting get together, but one seems to have an advantage, and the advantage is their home field, their home turf, which is usually dictated or predicated by the fans that are in the stands. And when you're not the home team or you're the visitor team, not only are they cheering for their home team, but they are cheering against whoever is the visiting team. Uh, like for example, you know, uh, I grew. up in Seattle, most all of you guys know that, but I was in Arizona for five years, and I got a chance to go watch my beloved Seahawks play against the Arizona Cardinals, and as I walked into this sea of red, well, mostly, there's a lot of Seahawks fans, but the sea of red, uh, I realized I wasn't at my home. See, in Seattle, all of the Seahawk fans are polite, and they're nice, and they're courtesy, and they just cheer for their own team. They sometimes applaud for the opposing team when they do bad things. You know, there's just, a, there's just all of this kindness in Seattle, but that's not what I received. I received people, you know, who decided to drink, um, let's just say, alcoholic beverages far beyond people should be allowed to drink in public places, you know, all around me, and they were all in red, and I felt like I stood out just a little bit, so much so that after the Seahawks happened to lose that game, which was many, many years ago, of course, as you know, uh, I was uh, walking up the aisle, and And a person, who was very red-faced, decided to um, uh, confuse me for the garbage can and uh, threw all of his popcorn, you know, uh, that was left all over me. Now, if I was in Seattle, we would have hugged him and been polite and all of my Seahawk friends, but because I wasn't in Seattle, I chose to continue to walk. I chose to continue to leave and not engage. That wasn't going to be my moment to stand up against the opposition. That wasn't the opportunity and time that I felt like the Lord was leading to make a wrong a right. And maybe you've been in a similar situation. Now, our country was founded on the principles of Christianity. There is no denying that. Now, how we became a country and what we did with the people living here is a completely different sermon. But anyone who says, that we are not based on the principles of Christianity, either doesn't know our history, is trying to rewrite history, or has a bias against Christianity. So much of the freedoms and the values of our country are founded in the Bible. In fact, even today, if you get a chance to go back to Washington, D.C., you will see thousands of documents or monuments everywhere literally littered with scripture in and through and quoted as reasons in and through and behind the principles and the values of this nation. In fact, in our very own town, is a pastor named Craig Lutz. Craig's a good friend of mine over at Victory Faith off of Argonne, and every other year, he takes a group of young adults to prove this very point. And they walk through and go through all these monuments museums to see what our country was founded upon. In fact, I remember it wasn't too many years ago that I happened to watch a clip from Oprah. No, I am not an Oprah fanatic, but I might have stumbled upon this episode. So as it came upon me, what was interesting about it that caught my attention is that there was an atheist who proclaim themselves as an atheist, doesn't believe that there is a God, who was trying to convince Oprah and the audience that the Bible should be taught in schools. And they're like, we don't understand why you're actually encouraging the Bible to be taught in schools. And it's because he knew as a fact that for us to better understand our history is going to be through the lens of the Bible. Not that he's encouraged anybody to follow the Bible, but so many of the phrases and the nuances and the foundation would be better understood for a generation that doesn't know the Bible to experience the Bible thus in his mind, be able to understand our Christian our. Our, our, our U.S. heritage. That's just a fact. Now, I say all this to say now this. Followers of Jesus, in many places in America today, we are no longer the home team. We may have been founded on that, but we are no longer the home team. Now, I love the United States of America. I absolutely love our country, and I'm so proud of so many aspects of this nation and the privilege that I got to be, to be born in this country, and the strongest times that I feel that is actually when I come back from a different country that I've been on a mission trip or visited, and I land, and I'm like, oh, Lord, thank you that I live in this nation. But if you're a follower of Christ, I need you to hear this as we begin this series. We might not be the home team, but this has never been our home. We might not be the home team, but if you're a follower of Christ, this is foundational. This is never intended, nor was it ever created in the eyes of Christ to be our home. This is foundational for what it looks like for us to stand up in a bowed-down world. So as followers of Christ, we're called to be in the world and not of the world. This is why Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, we are citizens of heaven. That is our home. That is our citizenship. That is our country. That is our true nation where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we eagerly wait for him to return as our savior. So let's make sure that when we are standing, that we are standing first on the principles of God based on our citizenship, and not first and foremost on the principles of this country. And we can confuse the two. We can appreciate you know, the second, I live, I love, I appreciate, but we've got to you know, uh, emulate, model, and teach the principles of the kingdom of God even above and through the Declaration of Independence and the principles of America. So how do we thrive in a godless culture? How do we stand up in a bowed-down world? Now, the response is usually one of three things when culture, when you go from the home team to the visiting team, uh, one of three things happens. First, we get mad. Right? Over the last 2 years by another show of hands, how many of you guys have gotten mad or upset at politics or at mandates, people choosing or not choosing, abiding or not abiding by any of these mandates? Raise your hand. Okay, so that is a natural response when things begin to change in a direction that we don't agree with. Secondly, if we don't get mad, over time we have a tendency, unfortunately we give up. In other words, we do nothing. We're like, you know what? I'm going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to let my neighbor duke it out with their neighbor. And I'm going to let my family member do it. I am just done. And so I'm just going to kind of give up. But the worst that I I found in my own heart and mind is sometimes we give in. We give in. What that looks like is that we don't stand up. We don't just give up. We just conform to just to, to adopt so that we can fit in to the world, even if we're followers of Christ. And that's not what he called us to do. There is another way. There is a way to stand up that we can learn from God's word in a few places. And the primary place that we're going to focus on through this series is in our Old Testaments in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, open to Daniel chapter 1. And while you're turning there, allow me to set the stage. I'm going to give you some history, you know, today kind of as a backdrop that will lead us not only today but in the next three weeks beyond today. During this approximate time period in which Daniel lived, construction began on the Acropolis in Athens, in Athens, Greece. The Mayan civilization flourished in Mexico. Aesop wrote his famous fables— Uh, Confucius and Buddha were alive at this time. Greek art had begun to excel, and the Phoenicians made the first known sea journey around Africa. So that was the historical context so that we know what we're reading about the Bible is taking place at that time in the world. And so here's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah... King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, the reason why he came in there is because the two great powers in Daniel's day was Egypt and the Babylonians, the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and they were at war. The king over Jerusalem was not put into place by God or the people. The king in Jerusalem at this time frame was put in place by the Pharaoh in Egypt. So you can imagine if you are king of Babylon and you're at war, that you're not gonna look fondly on these people, especially if there is a puppet king from your arch enemy. And so the Lord gave him victory, over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God, which we'll talk about in a little bit, in a few minutes. Then the king ordered ordered, uh, Ashpenaz, which is a awfully terrible name for me to pronounce, his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. He says this, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. He said, make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. See, Nebuchadnezzar was no idiot. He knew what he was trying to do to transform an entire culture. You get them while they're young, and they're probably between the ages of 13 and 17 years of age. And you indoctrinate them into what you believe is right and true so that the Jewish beliefs and their culture gets extinguished as they continue to grow. And then he says this, train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. I'm gonna describe that in just a second. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and they would enter the royal service. So who are these people? Well, One we know is Daniel, second, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Az, Az, Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of the staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Okay, Belteshazzar. The reason that's important is Daniel, which I also have that same name, the meaning is God is my judge. Belshazzar means prince of Satan. Little contradiction in what he's trying to change. Uh, Then he says, Well, here's Hananiah, who is now called Shadrach. Now, Hananiah is beloved by the Lord. Shadrach means that you are ruled by the sun god. Okay, so a little different there. How about uh, Mishael, who is called Meshach? Mishael is who is God. Meshach is who is like Shak, which is the Babylonian goddess corresponding to Venus. Or lastly, uh, Azariah was, uh, was called Abednego. Azariah, the Lord is my help. Abednego means servant of one of the gods of Nego. So continue to change your name was part of your identity. If we could change your name, we changed your identity. So how bad was it for these guys? They were the home team. They had everything kind of going for them. and a matter of moment, they got ripped away and they got put into captivity, okay, taken from their land. They were castrated. I'm not gonna talk any more about that. The training that they were taught in Babylonia was the study of the occult, okay? So it was studying the worship of Satan was part of their literature, as well as some of the mystics that were taking place at the time. They served an evil king, and their names got changed to honor Satan, When would you stand up? When would you say enough is enough? Oh, one more thing, Babylon. In the Bible, Babylon is the personification of the most evil of evil. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 18, it's the greatest description of how awful evil is, and it's called Babylon. Notice that it's not called Las Vegas. It's not called Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not called Berlin under Hitler. It is the worst of the worst of the worst, and that's where Daniel finds himself. How would you respond? Because Daniel gives us insight, because we're not there yet as a culture, but he gives us some insight of what, if he can do what he is allowed and led to do by God in that culture, how much more should we learn in ours, okay? So there are three things that you're gonna see through a good chunk of the first part of the book of Daniel that emphasize these as we look at Daniel's life, because he knew some things that he held on to, okay? There are three things. Here's the first one. Daniel held on to hope. More than anything else, he held on to hope. It says in verse two again, the Lord gave him, Nebuchadnezzar, victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. Daniel knew Nebuchadnezzar's not in charge. Who did he say gave permission to do this? The Lord. God is always in control. God is always in control, nothing surprises God. COVID doesn't surprise God. Mandates don't surprise God. Elections don't surprise God. God is always in control. And Daniel knew that, which is why he could write what he wrote in the midst of being in one of those heinous places of the world to say, you know what? It may seem like it's uncontrollable or we're completely out of control as a society, but I can take hope in that my God is in control. And so I can hold on to that. In fact, uh, uh, one of the guys I know is a pastor down in Arizona, his name is Chad Moore. I love how he said it. He said, Daniel knew that God was in control of whomever is in control. That's something that you can take home and have a firm foundation on. It gives me perspective as a guy who doesn't like to feel out of control, especially on airplanes. It is great to know that God is in control. Because of this truth, We see this exemplified in our New Testaments. See, it wasn't just Daniel. It was a model from Daniel that was carried on through Christ and into our New Testaments. For Paul writes from prison, he writes from Romans chapter 13, verse 1. How could he write this statement unless he knew that God was in control? Especially when the Roman Empire was suppressing the Jewish people. He says this, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So he could say, you know what? As much as the evil people may feel like that they're reigning and leading and guiding, that we know that there is someone that is greater, that is leading and guiding. In fact, Romans 8, 28 reminds us that we know that God causes everything, everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose for them. Or as we just heard in the video in Romans 8, 35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble, if we go through calamity, if we are persecuted or hungry or destitute or endangered or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, even though these bad things are happening and it feels like everything is out of control, he can write, overwhelming victory is ours in Christ who loved us. Why? Because this is not our home. That Christ has a place for us in all eternity. And I'm convinced that nothing, can neither separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither fears for today or worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to, be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord, amen? We can have hope that God is in control and that he's working. And you need to understand this, that, that, that Daniel knew that this is sometimes we forget, that sometimes the short-term success of the wicked is actually God's will. Sometimes the short-term success of the wicked is actually God's will. If you wanna research this, I don't have time to walk through this on this day, but in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and also Jeremiah chapter two, God warns the nation of Israel, if you should leave me, if you desert me, this is going to happen, what they're experiencing right now. So that, starting with you who are my people, will recognize the errors of your ways, turn your hearts back to me. God allows the consequences and the choices and decisions of humanity to actually be a help to draw us back to him. See, fear and despair are not from God. Fear and despair are not from God. Whenever you feel that, and I have felt that at times these last few years, that I'm like, okay, that's not of him, because Hebrews thirteen six reminds us, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Or 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear or of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Daniel puts his hope in God. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna see time and time and time... How he does this on a regular basis. So how do we stand up in a bow down world? Our hope first is in Christ. Secondly, the thing that Daniel knew and that he practiced is humility. Humility. This one's different because you're thinking like, this is not one you would think would be like, this is how I'm going to stand up. I'm going to be humble. Yeah, watch. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself, He's ready to stand up by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, what are these unacceptable foods? Well, they wouldn't be kosher, meaning God had strict dietary laws that he says you shall not eat these types of foods. Some of those foods would have been used in the sacrifice to idols as well. And so Daniel knows this, and he says, I'm not going to follow this, so here's my time to stand up. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Who did it? God. He's the one that gave. And he says, but he responded, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and this wine. If you become pale and thin, and compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke to the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us what's the first word he says? Please. I want you to notice that. Test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. Well, guess what? at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had eaten uh, the food assigned to the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. And all the vegetarians said, amen. That would be you guys crazy. We're, We're bound by New Testament laws, so just get out of here. All right, so here's what Daniel knew about humility when it pertains to standing up. Godly humility is how he wants to reach out and love those who are not connected to him. See, God still cares for his light to shine through his people, even to the darkest of worlds. And he says the way is through humility. See, sometimes when we get mad, we like to blast, we yell, you know, we we scream it from the rooftops and we're like, there's no way, this is just wrong. And yes, we have a democratic process, that we can walk through, but there is a way that God wants us to even model what this looks like, and it's through humility. Second Timothy, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Notice this, chapter two, verse 23. I hadn't read this verse in a long time. It really struck me this week. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Want me to rephrase that in our modern English translation? Don't get involved in social media. (laughs) <laughs> A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to only those you agree with. I doesn't say that either. That's what I wanted to say. Be kind to everyone. To be able to teach, to be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change these people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will escape from the devil's trap for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this dark world. Satan is having a heyday and there's a way that we need to respond. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, and we know it's not in all cases, we've seen that, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See, some of the greatest humility, and this is the hardest, I don't even wanna preach this part, is when we love our enemies and those we, who disagree with us. That's tough. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and that way you'll be acting as true children to your Father in heaven. It's easy to be angry at the city councils, to be angry at the school districts, to be angry at the governors, to be angry at the presidents, to be angry at Senate, to be angry at all of these people in authority. But I always need to ask myself, that I'm asking you, how often I've actually prayed for them. And all of a sudden I feel a little, little conviction if I'm gonna be honest with you. So how do we thrive and stand up in a godless culture? We focus on hope. We emphasize humility in the way that Daniel did. And third we lean upon wisdom, wisdom. Notice what Daniel, what God did because of what Daniel decided to do. God gave these four young men an unusual appetite for understanding every aspect of literature that they were being taught and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of vision and dreams. Who gave them these gifts? God did. He's in control, which is why we go back to it again. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times. Times more capable than any of the magicians and enchan- enchanters in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. See, this is one of the hardest things that I have had to try to navigate, and you have as well. There is a big difference between what we passionately disagree with and what God forget- forbids. Let me say it again there's a big difference. Between what we passionately disagree with and what God forget, for, forbids, we need to pick and choose His battles by His wisdom all the way through when a culture continues to head in a bad direction. He didn't stand up with everything that was presented, He picked and chose based on the wisdom that God had provided. Now, I wonder if you can see the difference. I know I can. I live in Idaho. Idaho has not seen masks in about a year and a half, and yet I'm still going to a Gonzaga game required in wearing them. And whatever you believe about masks or not, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that how heightened did we make something like masks as our defining line? Let me give you an example. When I come over to this side, you know, and I go into a restaurant or I go somewhere else and they ask me to put on a mask, I will, because I don't blame them. I'm not going to make a scene. I'm not going to do it. You know, if this is what they're asking, if I have to get on an airplane, okay, I'll do it, you know, because this is what you're asking me to do as I walk in. Okay, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. So I went to a grocery store, and I, you know, I put on the mask, and then I'm like, okay, you know, it's not what we do in Idaho, but okay, we're going to do it here, and we're going to walk through, and then I get to the checkout line. And then they say, it'll be eight cents for the bag. I was like, I'm sorry, for which bag? They're like, this plastic one. I'm like, is there something special about it? And they're like, no. So what did I do? I said enough is enough. I jumped over and launched at that cashier. The police came and now it's on TikTok everywhere. That's what I did. I was like, all right, the mask is one thing, but eight cents, are you kidding me? There is no rhyme or reason behind this. Doesn't make sense with some of the things that are doing. I'm only partially kidding when it comes to this kind of stuff. It is hard to differentiate between the majors and the minors from a biblical perspective. Because we can always make a biblical case for whatever it is that we're standing upon. But what we need is the wisdom from God to allow us to know what is the priority and in what situation. Now, knowing that we live in a democratic country, we do have opportunities in humility and in wisdom to use the rights in which that we've been granted by this great nation. And we want to be able to engage in the opportunities peacefully, you know, in doing and living the way that God has called us to live. But wisdom from God, I want to show this to you, is strategic, it's humble, and it's prayerful. It's never reactionary. It's never reactionary. Let me just prove it to you with this way. In James chapter 1 verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all. Who does he give it to? All. It's one of the coolest things in the Bible. You don't have to be a follower of Christ, and God will give you wisdom if you ask him. That's pretty cool. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will, what a promise of God, be given to you. So how do we know if someone is wise and has received this wisdom that comes from God? James 3.13 actually tells us, who is wise and understanding among you. This is how. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. What a great example. It goes on in verse 17. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Before we jump and react to whatever it is that's bothering us, we should pray for wisdom underneath this definition that comes from God in order to bring praise and glory to God because this world is not our home. See, Daniel's wisdom was on display from the beginning. So don't miss this as I wrap up. Daniel did not object to the name given to him. Why? Because he knew who he was and he couldn't care less what other people called him. Daniel did not object to the Babylonian education because he knew what he believed and he was grounded on God's word and truth. That did not scare him. Daniel did object to the food from the king's table because eating it was a direct disobedience to God. Therein lies his wisdom. So as a church made up of followers of Jesus, or for those of you who are considering, I apologize if as followers of Christ we have not come across the way in which God is teaching us. We too are imperfect. I am cheap among, I've got a lot of strong opinions about a lot of things, and I know you do too. And I've not come across the best, but I'm gonna do my best to recognize that God is in control, that I can have hope, you know, that I can continue to have humility, and I'm gonna continue to pray and live in wisdom, and I hope you will join me in that as well. So which area do you need to focus more on this week? Godly hope, godly humility, or godly wisdom? And remember, this is just the beginning. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today and the opportunity that we have to worship you, to learn about you, to be challenged by you. And I pray, Father, that anything that was said from me that is not from you would just just dissipate, would just roll off our backs and our hearts and minds, but things from you would stick that we would just be challenged and we would learn what it means in a culture that just seems to be falling further and further away from you, what it looks like to stand up. We love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.